Philippians 4. We're going to look this morning at verses 10 to 14. I recently finished Neil Postman's classic book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death, originally written in 1985. It's a fascinating book. It's all about the state of discourse in America, and particularly he chronicles the way television has changed the tenor of conversation in the United States over the past 70 years. And he argues that television, and radio to a lesser extent, but mainly television, has changed the way we think and how the way we act and the way we talk. Because previous to television, we were what he calls a print culture. So in other words, all of the information we get, all the information we process, basically comes through the written word. And the written word lends itself to coherent, logical, uh, reasonable discussion. After all, if you write a book or an article that makes no sense and the arguments are all fallacies and the whole thing is just a mess, people will pick up that very quickly and will discredit the article or book, whatever it is, because it's filled with errors. Television, on the other hand, is not given to coherent mental thought, but instead is meant for entertainment. And so the question is not, what information is it giving me, but how entertaining is it? Now, Neil Postman died in 2001. I wonder what he would say about the Internet culture that has now sprung up. But he supports the idea that television has changed things by looking at the history of advertising. And I thought this was fascinating. He looks at the history of advertising and how it has changed over the last hundred years. In the late 1800s, an advertisement in a newspaper, for, for instance, was oftentimes just pure information. An ad would be about soap. And it would tell you, here's what the soap is, here's what it contains, here's what it will do. And then the advertiser left it up to you to decide whether that was something that you thought you needed. In other words, let's just give them the information, and then they can make up their own minds. Neil Postman writes, they assumed that potential buyers were literate, rational, and analytic. Something that you can't assume about buyers today. In other words, advertising used to think you were smart enough to decide whether you needed something based on the facts. But about 1890, a shift happened. And advertising, instead of just being words on a page, became images. And suddenly, the whole style of advertising changed. Instead of just giving you the facts, advertising became about making you feel like you needed something. So instead of just telling you, here's what the product is, do you want it or not, It was trying to get you to want the item. So an image would pop up of a hamburger and french fries. And the idea was, hmm, that looks good. I want it. So it was creating a need where previously one didn't exist. You didn't know you needed a hair dryer until you see the advertisement and see the the long list of things that, you know, make it so appealing. And so the whole idea of advertising became drum up discontent, make people unhappy with the way they are, and that way we can sell them products that will at least supposedly meet that need. You see how advertising has changed. And and that's, by the way, the average, I guess you could say the prevailing view of advertising today. Create a discontent and then provide a product to meet that new need. But... 
how virtually all sales and advertising is done today. And that's why people are always on the run, and maybe some of us are too. Always on the run for the latest, newest gadget, something that's going to add to our lives. And they run from place to place. Discontent has become, I think, the prevailing attitude of our times. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. We're always looking for something else that's going to make us happy, whether it's money, a new job, a family, a new home, a new car, a new hobby. Our culture is teaching us to always be discontent, to always look for the next thing. So I want to present this morning the opposite message of our culture. The overall message I want to convey is this. Contentment is a Christian virtue that we must cultivate. Contentment is a Christian virtue we must cultivate. You're not going to get it from the culture. You're not going to get it from the advertisers. Contentment only comes by realizing that Jesus is enough. We've got to cultivate this. The reason we have to cultivate it is that none of us starts out content. There's always something in us that wants more. Contentment is something that requires practice and patience. But here's the good news this morning. You can learn contentment starting this morning. Even if you are not a content person right now, you can be by putting into practice what the Bible tells us. Look, if you will, at Philippians chapter 4. This is perhaps one of the most important passages in the Bible on contentment. Now, starting in verse 10 of chapter 4, the letter to the Philippians starts winding down. And Paul finally gets to what might be the main reason for his writing. Philippians, if you didn't know, is actually a thank you letter to the Philippian church. This church had apparently sent Paul several gifts throughout his ministry and continued to support him financially. And so Philippians, at least in part, is written to thank the Philippians for their ongoing partnership in the gospel. Now, it's more than just a, a uh, thank you letter. And I think it has to do with that very fact, their partnership. They haven't just been giving to Paul just to give him money to keep him going. They've actually been joining him in his ministry. Even though they're miles away, even though they're in a different continent, they are still partaking in Paul's ministry by supporting him. Now, as we study this passage this morning, it provides us three lessons, three important lessons about contentment. And we're going to talk about those in just a moment. But let me read the passage first. Starting in verse 10, I'm going to go down to verse 14. Philippians 4, 10 to 14 says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Now, you might notice in this passage, Paul is somewhat indirect in his thanks. He never comes out and says, thank you for the gift. But I think it's fairly clear. If you look at verse 10, he says, I have rejoiced in the Lord. By the way, there's that theme again, joy, rejoicing. 
that's also, I think, the third or fourth time he's mentioned rejoicing in the Lord. See, that's his main rejoice is, is in God, but what God has done for him through the Philippians. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now your care has flourished again. Their care, their concern. It's actually interesting that the word concern or care here is the word to think of. In other words, you have called me to mind again. You've been reminded of me and have remembered me in your gifts. It's also interesting that Paul, back in chapter 1, had said the same thing about them. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, It is right for me to think this of you. Same word, think this of you. Because I have you in my heart. Well, apparently, Paul had the Philippians in his heart, but the Philippians had Paul in theirs. They continued to support him. Now, again, it, it seems that there was some disruption in their giving. You notice what he says in verse 10? Though you surely did care, you lacked opportunity. So it's not that the Philippians stopped caring at some point and then started again. Now, their gifts stopped and started again, but their concern didn't. The only problem was there was some lack of opportunity. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what that was. Maybe there was a famine in Philippi. Maybe there was some kind of economic downturn where they weren't able to give anymore. More likely, it was probably because of Paul's circumstances. They didn't know where he was. He was in prison. He was in all kinds of trouble. So how can we send a gift? We don't even know where he is. The point is, it had been disrupted, and now they had opportunity again. And what did they do? They went right back to their pattern, which is giving, supporting. Paul was grateful for their constant and timely care for him. In fact, go down to verse 14. He caps it off like this. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. In his time of need, Philippians stepped up and they shared. Now, I think what we have sandwiched in the middle between verses 10 and 14 is Paul clarifying. Because he doesn't want to come off as if he's asking for a gift. Or he's acting like, oh, I, I need you to continue to support me. For Paul, it's never been about the money. He's not trying to get a gift out of them. He's simply thanking them for their part in sharing in his ministry. So as we get into verses, really the heart of it, verses 11 to 13, I want to point out three lessons about contentment that we need to learn this morning. If we're going to live in a way that is contented, if we're going to live out a, a satisfied life in Christ, we need to learn these three important lessons. Lesson Number one, contentment is a learned skill. Contentment is a learned skill. Like many skills in life, it requires practice and patience. How did you learn to ride a bike? You didn't hop on the seat and just take off. Nobody does. It takes some practice. You have to fall down and skin your knee at least once to learn to ride your bike. And eventually you get balanced and you, you get better. Maybe you even started off with training wheels to help keep it balanced. Nevertheless, it's not something that's automatic. You have to learn how to do it. The same is true with contentment. It's something you have to learn. You have to practice at. It doesn't come naturally to us, not even to the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul had many reasons to feel discontent, even resentful 
about his circumstances. Nevertheless, he becomes, I believe, a model for biblical contentment. Look at verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. You notice the key word there, learned? He learned to be content. It didn't just naturally flow out of him. It didn't just get zapped into him at the moment of his conversion. It was something that Paul had to learn, just like we have to learn. Now look at the beginning of verse 11. He says, not that I speak in regard to need. He's just thanked them that their giving has flourished again. But then he clarifies. He says, I'm not saying this because I have a need. I'm not saying this because I want you to give more. You know, sometimes when a church talks about money, everyone assumes, oh, it's because you know, giving is down and they're trying to drum up some more support. They're trying to encourage people to give, reignite contributions. And Paul is deliberately trying to avoid that thought. He's not, he's not bringing up their gift as a way to sort of nudge them into giving, hey, can you, can you spare a little more? Imagine this morning if I cornered you after the service and I came up and said, you know, do you remember that strawberry cream pie you brought to me last month? Oh, man, that was delicious. That was one of the best pies I've ever had. I just wanted to say thank you for that. What would you assume I'm, I'm getting at? You might think that I'm after another pie, and you would probably be right. You see, sometimes we, we sort of veil our requests in thanks. Thank you for that. That was such a wonderful thing. Can you, can you spare a little more? Paul is not doing that. He's saying, listen, it's not that I have some need that I, I need to, to bring to your attention. In fact, the opposite. Paul does something here in the verse that no fundraiser would ever recommend. He basically says, thanks for the gift. I've learned to be content no matter what. So gift or no gift, I've learned how to live without. It's like if uh, one of these many charities that contact you and are always asking, you know, would you like to make a donation to such and such a fund? You know, imagine if in saying thank you, they said, hey, by the way, we don't need any more donations. Don't bother sending anything more. That has never happened, and I'm sure never will. But Paul says, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. And that's the key word I want to focus on, that he learned it. He had learned to live on little as well as much. He didn't need their gifts. He had, he had the gift of God. And, and with that, he had learned to be content. You know, how happy are we when we have little? That perhaps is a real test of contentment. Notice what he says in verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am. Now, Paul had a lot of different states he was in, and I don't mean United States. I mean, he was in high estate. There were times when Paul had everything he needed provided for him. There were other times when he had nothing. There were times when Paul was welcomed and accepted, and there was times when he was rejected and turned away. There was times when he was received with gladness. Other times he was stoned. He had known a lot of different circumstances. And he basically says here, whatever state I'm in, wherever I find myself, whatever condition, I've learned to be content. 
You know, contentment really has nothing to do with what is in or isn't in your bank account at any given moment. There are plenty of discontented millionaires and very happy and satisfied paupers. It isn't what you have, but your outlook on life. Now he says here, I've learned to be content. That word content has the idea of being self-sufficient or independent. You know, we, we say somebody is independently wealthy. It means that they have enough money to retire and they can maintain their lifestyle till they die. Well, this doesn't mean independently wealthy, but basically it means you don't need others helping you along. You don't need somebody kind of holding your hand. It's like the, the young person who eventually moves out of the house and they are self-sufficient. They don't need anything else from mom or dad. They're able to step out on their own. Well, here, I don't think Paul has in mind self-sufficient so much as God-sufficient. The reason he can be content is because God provides what he needs. And so he doesn't need to be worried. He's able to just be happy with what he has because that's what God has given him. It's interesting, as I was browsing through some commentaries on Philippians, I found that this word content was a popular word among the Stoics. The Stoics were Greek philosophers, and we actually still use the word Stoic to refer to sort of this resigned acceptance of things. Like if you say somebody's a Stoic person, it means they just sort of take whatever comes. Well, that's what the Stoics were all about, this word contentment. It's you just learn to accept whatever comes in life as, as that being your lot. And you sort of just... You know, whether it's good or bad, you sort of take it with this cold, you know, stone face. Well, that's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's not suggesting we all go be Stoics. In fact, David Garland, a helpful commentator, writes this. No Stoic would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No Stoic would request prayers for his situation. Paul sets his hope in Christ, but Stoics sought to be free from hope because they believed it kept one from submitting to his fate and placed one in servitude. So it's not just a resigned acceptance of whatever comes. Paul's contentment is in the Lord because the Lord provides what he needs. True biblical contentment is seeing Christ as all we need and everything, everything else good in our life is just added to that. Christ is all I need and everything else is just bonus. I heard someone tell a story of a simple and humble Puritan who sat down at his dinner table and found that all he had was a little cup of water and a small piece of bread. A very, a very humble and small dinner indeed. And as he sat looking at his tiny feast, a smile crept over his face and he said, All of this? And Jesus Christ too? You see, that's, that's the right attitude. Because with Christ, we have everything. Everything else is just bonus. That was the attitude of biblical contentment. It's something that Paul had to learn. Here's the question. How do we learn to be content? Well, let me suggest three ideas. Here's three things that we can do and, and ought to change in our thinking if we want to learn contentment. Number one, break free of materialism. Break free of materialism. 
we are absolutely inundated with it. Everybody is all about the stuff. How much stuff can you accumulate? Stuff will make you happy, we're told. And all around us is materialism. You've always heard the famous saying, right? He who dies with the most toys wins. You know, that's the idea. Collect stuff. And if we're in this mindset of thinking, hey, I need more stuff to make me happy, well, number one, it'll never satisfy. You'll keep getting more and more stuff. One survey showed that Americans always think that if they had twice as much as they have now, they would be happy. And so if you're making $50,000, well, $100,000 would be just what I need. If you're making $100,000, $200 what I need. And it's always out there. It's, it's the constantly moving goalposts of satisfaction. We need to learn that we don't need stuff. Again, there's another story of a monk uh, back in the 4th century who rejected all of the materialism of the world, went out to live in, a, in the desert or wherever. Occasionally, though, he would come back into the town and walk through the marketplace. And people asked him, they said, aren't you tempted? Like, don't you come back and aren't you tempted with all this stuff, these things that, you know, doesn't your heart long for them? And he said, no, I like to walk through the, the market to see all the things that I don't need to be happy. You know what we ought to do this week? Go to the store, walk down some aisles, and just look at all the stuff you don't need to be happy. Now, some stores it's pretty easy. So, guys, you know, don't, don't go to Kohl's and walk down the aisle and say, oh, I don't need any of this stuff. Go to Bass Pro Shop and walk down the aisle and, and see all the stuff you don't need to be happy. The point is, we're sold this bill of goods that, hey, just have this, it'll make you happy. It won't. Makes me think of, of someone who goes to the store and they're browsing around looking at all of the crutches for sale. Who does that? You don't go shopping for crutches unless you need crutches, right? I mean, what are you going to do with a pair of crutches if you have two fine working legs? And yet, we do the same thing. I mean, do we need this other stuff? And yet, we browse around and act like it's something that would, hey, I'd really like that. So we've got to break free from materialism if we want to learn contentment. Secondly, we need to forget the Joneses. You know, those people next door that always have more than you, the, the people who are your competition. And this is the comparative approach. We're always looking at other people as sort of the gauge. They're what I want to be. They have what I want to have. So we're always looking outward, comparing ourselves with everyone else. You know, if Paul had done that, you know, he might have looked out and said, well, you know, look at these Roman citizens, you know, these Roman guards. Look at all these people that have all this stuff going for them. I mean, some of the aristocrats in the Roman Empire, you know, had these huge villas and slaves and plantations and all of this. And here's Paul whom I would argue is one of the greatest men of that generation, had nothing. He could have said, how's this fair? Why, why do I subsist on so little when people who don't even care about God have so much? No, Paul instead learned to be content. He didn't want a palace. He didn't want slaves. He didn't want a plantation. He wanted Christ, and that's all. We need to forget the Joneses. Third, we need to love Christ more. Be happy with what you are and what you have. 
we can do that when we love Christ more than all of these things, more than the world and all that it offers. We need to love Christ supremely. That's what Paul has said in the previous chapter. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I want to know him. That's what matters. It's a difficult lesson to learn, but it's very much worth learning. Contentment. Lesson number two, though. Contentment is not tied to circumstances. This is pretty obvious in the text. Contentment is not tied to circumstances. So we ask the question, what do you need to be truly happy? You're not happy right now because there's something you don't have, whether it's something tangible, stuff, or whether it's something intangible, like family or respect or love or acceptance. What do you need to be happy? Again, it's that moving goalposts I mentioned. Contentment is never found in reaching that goal because there's always another goal out ahead. There's always something else that you're going to need. He says in verse 11, not, I speak not in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Whatever state. Now he goes on to explain that in verse 12. What, what state does he have in mind here? He says, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. You read that and you think to yourself, Paul, can you be serious? You can be content in whatever state you are. But there he is, Paul, smiling, happy, content in circumstances. Even though he's got chains around his wrists and his ankles, he's currently in prison. And yet he's saying, Lord, I'm content with what you've given me. I'm thankful for this imprisonment. Can we have that kind of contentment? Can we learn that level of, of trusting in God? Well, I think we can. And it's by realizing that our contentment's not tied to having the something or not having something. He, he spells out what these states are. He describes them, first of all, as the circumstances of position. Circumstances of position. You notice at the beginning of verse uh, 12, he says, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. He's not talking here mainly about things or possessions, but about life circumstances. I know how to be abased. That means to be brought low. Paul knows what it's like to be treated like a servant, to be trampled on by others. By the way, this is the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 8, where it talks about Christ lowered himself. See, even Jesus knows what it is to be brought low. And so did Paul. He was abased. And even though he was at the bottom of the totem pole, he learned to be content with that. Are you content with being a follower? Are you content with being a private in the army or a janitor at the law firm? Are you content to scrub floors? Paul doesn't have any begrudging or self-pity here. He was happy to be lowered. We ought to constantly remind ourselves, I am what I am by the grace of God. That was Paul's attitude. Not only that, he says, I learned to abound, not just in prosperity. The idea with that word is to exceed, 
to exceed. Financially, yes, but also position, to be on top. Paul had also been in places where he was respected and appreciated. And that elevation didn't lead him to crave for more. And his humiliation didn't cause him to mourn because of less. He learned that all he needed was in Christ. Everything else, God would provide. So we see the circumstances of position. Also, the circumstances of provision. Provision. You notice at the end of verse 12, he talks about, I have learned to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So being full and being hungry. There were times when Paul had nothing. He had learned the secret of contentment even when the bank account was empty and the cupboards were bare. This is part of the reason I think he talks about contentment. Because he knew how to get along even without the Philippians' support, even when they didn't send a check. He knew how to survive, how to thrive. I heard someone say it like this. Paul knew how to be content whether stuffed or starving. Can we be content when we're stuffed and starving? Ben Franklin once said, Contentment makes poor men rich. Discontent makes rich men poor. So can we be happy with little? People talk about quality of life or maintaining one's lifestyle. We get used to certain comforts, don't we? We get used to life being a certain way, and and we think that's necessary to be happy. I couldn't be happy uh, without a refrigerator or an ice maker or uh, heated seats in my car, whatever. we, We get used to those creature comforts, and then we think that they're necessary. Well, Paul learned how to live with little. He also said he knows how to get along with plenty. Now, you might think to yourself, well, that doesn't take much. I mean, what what learning do we have to do to to learn how to be rich? I mean, when you're rich, you just pay for everything. But I don't think that's entirely true, and I think it's evidenced by people who win the lottery sometimes. Sometimes people will play the lottery. They'll win millions, and it's like they don't know what to do with wealth. And they end up wasting it and squandering it and being taken advantage of. It's like they don't know how to deal with having much. And honestly, having much comes with certain stewardship and responsibilities and pressure. I'm not sure sometimes I would want to be rich with all that comes along with it. Furthermore, I believe in some ways it's harder for a rich person to learn to be content. Because... There's always one more. Like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, they meant having greater means. Somebody like Solomon can, can pay for whatever he wants. And because of that, he keeps filling his life with more and more stuff in an attempt to find contentment. Okay, cars doesn't do it for me. I'll start collecting motorcycles. Motorcycles doesn't do it. I'll start collecting boats. And so contentment keeps getting pushed further and further out, whereas the poor person can't have anything there's no trial and error period of trying to find contentment you just have to find it life can be up and down for us and chances are we're going to experience both the stuffing and the starving at times chuck swindoll depicts the back and forth of this verse like this you notice in the verse it kind of goes back and forth Uh, he talks about abounding 
and being abased. He talks about full and hungry, abound, suffer need. He depicts it like this with these arrows so that it bounces back and forth between being hungry, having need, and he describes it as sort of the yo-yo of life. We can bring up that slide. It's the next one, I think. Yeah, so back and forth, the humble means to prosperity, then going hungry to being filled, but then suffering need and having abundance. This is the yo-yo of life. Back and forth it goes, and sometimes we're caught in that. Can you be content with the yo-yo? Can you be content up on the top as well as you can on the bottom? Paul could. He had learned that. You see, it's not tied to circumstance. It's not like, oh, when I'm up, I'm fine, and when I'm down, no, I can't be content with that. Sorry. No, it's not tied to circumstances. Why not? Because it's tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Several hundred years ago, a preacher and pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. By the way, the rare jewel of Christian contentment is just as rare today as it was 400 years ago. In the book, Burroughs states, Certainly our contentment does not consist in getting what the thing we desire, but in God fashioning our spirits to the conditions. So it's not us getting what we want. It's God helping us to be content with what we have. It's not about changing our circumstances. Lesson number three, contentment can only come from God. Now, didn't we just talk about the Stoics who kind of resolutely determined that they were going to accept everything that came? And you may even know people who don't know the Lord and yet seem to have a very contented disposition. And in fact, they may be content to a degree, but not for the right reasons and not in Christ. You see, contentment without Christ is just learning to accept what comes. Contentment in Christ is seeing him as the provider. Look at verse 13, maybe the most famous verse in Philippians. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I guess, my guess is that whenever you've heard this verse quoted or cited, it probably was not in a discussion about contentment. This verse gets used all over the place, that Christ helps me, strengthens me to do some difficult task. And that is true. That's what the verse is saying. But we need to look at it in its context because it sort of, it helps us narrow it. This verse is not saying that God is a genie in a lamp who helps us do whatever our hearts desire to do. It's not that God just strengthens me to do what I want to do. Particularly here in its context, it's talking about contentment. How can Paul learn contentment? I mean, it, you might look back and say, look, Paul, what you're saying, I, I see what you're saying, but that's not, I could never do that. I could never do that. Here he gets to the secret of contentment. It's in Christ. You can't do it by yourself. You can't drum it up. You can't create it. You need Christ to strengthen you. And if that's the case, then you can do whatever God wants you to do through his strength. Again, I don't think this verse is necessarily, you have to limit it and say, no, this only is talking about contentment. But I think it's only talking about what God would have us to do. Anything that God tells us to do, and you might say, well, I don't know if I can do that. Christ, you can do all things 
that is all things God has told you to do, through Christ who strengthens you. So don't use as an excuse, well, I'm not strong enough, I, I can't do that, I can't be content, I can't not worry, I can't uh, you know, live out scripture, obey it. Well, you can if you are in Christ with his help because he will strengthen you to do what you need to do. Ultimately, what this verse is telling us is that where do we find contentment? It's in Christ. Without Christ, we can do nothing, the Bible says. Through him, we can do all things. That is all things that we are, we are instructed to do. We have the strength in Christ. And in him, we have all we need for fulfillment. So what is the hardest thing you think that you might have to do? You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about giving up on worry. You might think to yourself, well, that's a lot easier to say than to do. Well, yes, and perhaps that's the very issue of contentment. That's why this promise, I think, is good news. You can be content despite circumstances because the Lord will strengthen you and help you to do it. So where does contentment come from? Well, it comes from knowing and following Christ. We should be content in whatever we are given because it's given by God. Here's the thing, though. Do we have to be content about everything? I'm going to suggest there's one area that Paul has already said in Philippians he was never content with, and that was his relationship with the Lord. He talks about, not that I've already attained in chapter 3, verse 12, or that I'm already perfected, but I lay hold of that which Christ has also laid hold of me. I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he's constantly pursuing the Lord, never quite satisfied that I've, I've attained. But because his pursuit is of the Lord, everything else in life falls into the background. He can be content with little or much because it's all about the Lord. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy and says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So in other words, if you're pursuing godliness and you are being content with everything else, that is, that is truly something of value. Pursue it. So we need to know Christ to follow him. And that's part of the question we must ask here. Do you know Christ? Are you in him? Because otherwise it's just stoic acceptance. I'm just going to take whatever comes. But if we are in Christ, if you know him, if he is your savior, then you can have contentment because you have Christ. Nothing else is needed. And if there is anything needed, God will provide it. Again, 1 Timothy 6, Paul says there, be content with food and clothing. In other words, God gives you what you need. Otherwise, be satisfied in him. So in a world filled with discontent all around us, it's always telling us to get the latest, the newest, the best, the upgrade. God tells us to be content with what you have and with where God has put you. That's not an easy task. But let me wrap up this message with a simple question. What do you really need? What do you really need to be happy? Do you need respect? Love, family, success, appreciation, money, 
What do you need? Well, I hope your answer this morning would be Christ, because nothing else is needed. In our Sunday school hour, we talked about Hebrews 11, or excuse me, Hebrews 13. Just listen to what it says here in verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Does that verse strike you as a bit odd? He says, be content with the things you have. And then you would expect him to say, because I will provide your needs. That's not what he says. He says, I will be with you. In other words, be content with what you have because you have Christ. What else do you need? It's not that God is going to come along and provide everything, although he, he does provide our needs. The focus of the verse is be content because you have Christ, and he promises to be with you. I think our problem is that we're not satisfied with Christ. We want other things, too. Let the cry of our heart this morning be, Lord, may I be satisfied with you and you alone. And may I be content with everything else.